The reason I said Henry was so confident is because he, he managed to get engaged uh, last week, was it, Henry? Friday. Friday? Oh, very good. Is it, is it to the girl, lady beside you? <laughs> well, that's just wonderful. I did pre, premarital counseling with Henry and Sabrina, obviously with great success. So I'm open for pre, premarital counseling now, but I'm charging for those now. They get, they were the first and they actually, I uh, learned very quickly with Henry and Sabrina. They knew more about marriage than I did. Uh, based upon the books they'd read and things they'd heard. So I learned a lot. And um, so um, all credit to you <laughs> for enhancing my marriage. Uh, oh, you are open? No, no. We, I'm fast-tracking you. Yeah, there's a long lineup now. Um, anyway, that's really exciting. Congrats, guys. And we'll be praying for you. And we look forward to who's next after Henry and Sabrina. No pressure, some of you. Uh, it's good to be back. I was at a conference in Louisville this week, which was really encouraging to my soul. I met lots of fine Christian people, and uh, it was actually a, a really large conference of music leaders and stuff. So I, I felt completely out of my depth, but they were, they were wonderful and made some good acquaintances and hopefully future friendships, and just good to be around Christians from all over the United States who came for it to just get a pulse on what's happening, things like that. So it's, it was really valuable for me as well. And uh, so back to uh, Glory, Vancouver in uh, the summer. I don't like leaving Vancouver in the one time of year it's nice. I don't understand that. Uh, it makes no sense to leave Vancouver when it's nice. It's miserable for 10 months of the year and we stay here and then we leave when it's nice. Well, no more. I'm putting my foot down next year. Um, no, I probably won't, but <laughs> the thought did cross my mind. So we're going to be, for the next month or so, just looking at different um, passages of Scripture, and then in September, when everyone's sort of back and we're back into the rhythm, I'll start uh, probably a series on Christian backsliding, and then also go through a book of the Bible. So uh, that's the, the plan. Uh, so today we're going to be in John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. And to the end of the chapter, but mainly uh, focusing on verse 25 as we get there. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep, also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. 
And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let us ask God to bless his word preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that as it is to us the words of life, it may be just that and to everyone here and not words of death. We pray that we will understand these words in a way that will bring glory to your name, but also help us in our Christian walk. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a rather horrible-sounding doctrine that most of us here probably confess called total depravity, and sometimes can be a little bit misunderstood, as though people are as evil as they can possibly be, when in actual fact, total depravity means that uh, sin has affected us to every part of our being. There is no part of our being that is not affected by sin. Not that we are as bad as we can possibly be, but that sin has affected us to every extent of our being, whether our bodies, our actual physical bodies, which are affected by sin, and that is why we die, or our minds and heart, soul and strength, the spiritual faculties. We do not think the way we should. We do not speak the way we should. We do not do deeds the way that we should. Sin affects all of us, and in fact affects how we think about God and how we think about things in the world. And then we look at specific sins, such as murder and atrocities. We look at sins like adultery and fornication. We look at sins like theft and liars and cheats and selfishness and pride and unbelief. But if you really want to understand the wickedness of man... You have a verse here that seems to outstrip even what Paul will say about the natural man in Romans chapter 3 when he ransacks the Psalms, made most of the Psalms to give us a picture of man. uh, The venom of asps is on their lips. Their throats are like open graves. And you say, well, that's not very nice. But here, as Spurgeon makes this point in a way that only Spurgeon really can. He says, if I want to tell you about man's sin, I must tell you that man decided that he would put to death his God and slew his Savior. And when I have told you that, I have actually given you the essence of all sin. You want the pinnacle. Look at what man did to Christ, the masterpiece of crime, the very pinnacle and climax of the terrific pyramid of mortal guilt. And it culminates in verse 25, they hated me without a cause. Do you want the pinnacle of sin among human beings in this world? You have it right there. They hated me without a cause. Now, to get there, we need to see the context in which Christ offers that. Now, the larger context of chapter 15, you'll know of the vine and the branches. So now he's speaking about the realities of being in union with Jesus Christ and what that will mean. It will mean you will bear fruit, but it will also mean that in the bearing of that fruit, certain things are going to happen to you. And We are told in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
Now this if isn't a sort of it may never happen, but if it does, it's more a case of when it does happen, if the world hates you, if there comes a point, and there certainly will come a point, if you belong to me, if the world hates you. Now, the rest of the scriptures bear this out. There are a number of places where, for example, Paul will say that everyone who wants to live a godly life, not just claim to be a Christian, but everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. Will be. It's not left for debate. It will happen. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it's actually a most striking verse because it really illuminates, I think, what John is saying here in chapter 15. In chapter 1, verse 29, he says, It has been granted to you. And that word granted to you is where we get the word for God being gracious to us. It's the same word. It has been graciously given to you as a gift, not only to believe in his name, but what? To suffer for his name as well. Paul is saying to the Philippians, God has given you a gift, the gift of faith, but he's also given you along with the gift of faith, the gift of suffering. And John actually brings that out later on in this chapter, that this is a gift given by God. Now, if the world hates you, who is he speaking of? We could just say, well, he's speaking of those outside of Christ. And that is indeed true. But it seems to me that when you look at the word world in John's gospel, and you ought to always do that rather than just say this is what it means, you can see that it has to do with the created order in moral rebellion against God. It's not just speaking about the fact that there is a world or even that there are people in the world. But world in John speaks about the created order rebelling against God. It usually has negative connotations in terms of their attitude towards God. So when in John chapter 3 verse 16, you may not remember this verse, but when God says, for God so loved the world, what is so striking about that is not that he just loves people, but that he loves people who are in rebellion against him. So here, if the world hates you, those who are in opposition to God know that it has hated me before it hated you. And the world has hated Christ. Chapters 1 to 15 will bear this out. The question is, why would the world hate Christ? Why would those in opposition to God, even those who are religious people, and in fact, in John's Gospel, mainly religious people, why would they hate Christ? And Christ actually gave us the answer in chapter 7 that was read earlier in verse 7. He says, the reason the world hates me is because I do what? Do miracles? No, that's not what the reason he gives. The reason the world hates me is because I testify that their deeds are evil. 
You can have a Christ where he's the Christ who loves people, and that's true. You can have a Christ where he's the Christ who helps people and is merciful to people and heals people, and that is true. But you do not have the Christ of the Scriptures unless that same Christ who helps and heals is also the Christ who testifies with his words that what people do is evil. That is why they hate him. And he says that about himself. So here in chapter 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Because in all things, Christ is the pioneer, the leader of our faith and of our Christian living. Whatever we go through, he has already gone through. And that is the positive and the negative. He was resurrected, we will be resurrected. He is persecuted, we will be persecuted. Because... We are in union with Him in all things. Now, He gives an explanation as for why this would happen. Because if you were, in verse 19, of the world, if you were part of this moral order of rebellion against God, they would do what? They would love you as its own. You would be on their team. You would share in their ideas and opposition. And they wouldn't hate you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, the idea that he's giving here is an idea that we see throughout the rest of the scriptures. That those who are belonging to Christ have had their attitude, their affections, their worldview utterly changed. That is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to what? To the world. But be what? Transformed. Not have a small change here and there. It's utter transformation so that you may be able to test and approve what is God's will. John, a little more strongly, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, says, Do not love the world or anything in the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It's absolute antithesis. There's no room in the language of the Scriptures for a little bit of love of a created order that is in rebellion against God. It is black and white. There is no gray. That's why James will say in James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know what? That friendship with the world is enmity or hatred towards God. It's antithesis. So Jesus will say in Luke, Woe to you when what? When all men speak well of you. If you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and you have no enemies, you probably have no honor. That's the fact. Because of everything that is said here. Now notice, as I said earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it has been graciously given to you. It's been granted to you to suffer for his name. But here the accent is quite similar, though the words are different, because Christ says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the hatred that you are receiving as a Christian is for what reason? Because Christ has chosen you out of the world. In other words, you have been saved out of the world for what? For eternal life? Yes, that's said in John's Gospel. But not just eternal life. You have been saved out of the world in order to be 
persecuted. God has granted to you persecution, hatred. But not just hatred. It's hatred in union with Christ. Otherwise, it would just be cruel and vindictive. But it's hatred in Christ. So why would the world hate us? And it's very simple to understand why the world would hate us. We make absolute claims about the destiny of people. We say there is a heaven and a hell. We say that what you do in this life matters, that Christ will return and there will be goats and there will be sheep. There will be some to the left and some to the right. Christ says the road is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, but the road is narrow and difficult. It's agonizing that leads to life. We make absolute claims on the destiny of where human beings go. And that is why we believe in evangelism and missions. And the world hates evangelism. The world hates missions. The world hates the idea that we would invest time and energy into going into other cultures and places where Christ has not been named, telling people to turn and believe and repent and change their lives to honor God. The world hates that. We speak to moral issues, whether it is abortion or whether it is marriage, and we have absolute claims on whether the life of a child in a womb is sacred and protected by God or should be. And we say that marriage is designed by God in the way that He has constituted human beings down to the very DNA of our being to be between a man and a woman in faithfulness as long as they shall live. If the world hates you, do not be surprised. Now he will elaborate a little bit in verse 20 by saying, remember, a servant is not greater than his master. So the point is that if they persecuted Christ and you belong to Christ, they will also persecute the church. Christ was persecuted. And the point he's saying is, because you belong to me, you're going to enjoy all of the blessings that come from that. And one way to enjoy the blessings, and I use my word carefully, is to suffer for his sake. You say, well, enjoy is not the right word, Pastor Mark. I take issue with that. But notice the response of the apostles when they were forbidden from preaching in Acts the name of Jesus Christ and they were beaten. And what happened? They went out rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. The attitude of the modern man is in stark contrast to the attitude of the scriptures about what it is to suffer for the sake of Christ. You cannot escape the fate of your leader of your Savior, of your Lord. And he will speak about how these people in verse 21 to 24, how they were confronted with the gospel. They were confronted with Christ himself. And if he had not spoken to them in verse 22, they would not have been guilty of sin. He's not making an absolute claim on they would never have sinned. He's speaking about a specific sin. They would not have been guilty of the sin of rejecting the gospel in their very presence. Those who rejected Christ and his message and his 
offer of salvation are in far greater condemnation than people who were living in Ethiopia or any other part of the world at that time who did not hear the gospel. They are guilty of a very specific sin and they have no excuse for their sin. But Christ ramps it up. He's saying, not only are you guilty when you reject me, but you're actually guilty of rejecting God. In fact, you hate God. Imagine saying to God-fearing Jews, you hate God. Their whole life is built on on being God-fearers, being religious, saying we believe in God. And Christ has the audacity to tell them, you hate God? Unless they do actually hate God. And how do we know they hate God? Because they do not believe in the one and only sent from the Father. And so their hatred is of God. In fact, I think there's an implicit Trinitarianism in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, and if you read Matthew chapter 12, you will see that if by the Spirit I cast out demons, you will know the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. So the works that he does are done in the Spirit, and later on we see reference to the Spirit in this chapter. Notice, if I, the Son, had not done Among them, the works in the Spirit that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. They hate the triune God. But now we come to what is the climax of their wickedness in verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Do you know, it didn't strike me earlier, and I confess, not even in my preparation, it struck me as I was reading it right here, this will happen. You read God's Word, you'll pick up on little things. You've got to reread. You're going to pick up on things all the time. It happens to pastors right before they're about to preach. But I love how it's written here. But the Word that is written in their law, their law that they claim to love and uphold, actually tells of their rejection. They go around with their law acting like we hold to the law and they're holding up a law that will tell of their rejection of the Messiah. Their own law condemns them. And it condemns them in the most awful manner. They hated me without a cause. Now this could be a quote from Psalm 35, but I think it's actually more likely to come from a more explicitly Uh, Christ-focused Psalm, Psalm 69. In verse 4, David writes these words, which are now attributed to Christ. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. And this is true of David, but it is even more so the case with Christ, because there could be some things in David where one could say, hey, he's not perfect. But in the case of Christ, there's absolutely nothing in him that we would have a natural tendency to dislike. And I thought about this. What is it about people that we dislike? Who have otherwise some very fine characteristics, but are marred by maybe one or two obvious characteristics. Think about yourself. What is it about me that is a bit off-putting? You ever thought about that about yourself? Do I have anything that perhaps is... Not all roses and glory. And I thought about some of you. I did actually, I'm not lying. 
What is it that makes you probably not the most perfect person in the world? And you see, Spurgeon has a wonderful sermon on this, and I have to confess some of his points mirrored my own. And he says, one of the things about Christ is that he wasn't this person sort of walking around with regal power and acting like the big man and in a position of authority. And there's something about people in those types of positions that can be quite off-putting. Rather, what we find is that he who in very nature was God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, taken advantage of over others. Rather, he made himself nothing. The one who actually had all authority made himself nothing. We could not look to Christ and say, he's always showing off. He's always acting like he's the big man. He was also not proud. There is that issue of pride in some people who would be rather likable if it were not for that devilish characteristic of pride, if they could just show a little humility. Jesus had none of that. He was meek and he was lowly. He washed the feet of his disciples. There was nothing we could say, ah, you know, I like his miracles, but you should see the way he acts after he performs those miracles. Instead of seeking attention, he actually goes to desolate places and prays. And after he does a miracle, he'll even tell people, don't tell anyone what has just happened. Imagine we did something, I'd be like, hey, listen, uh, call the news, let's get this out. This, people need to hear about this. God is doing wondrous things through me. There was no pride. And he was not short-tempered or irritable. I'm glad Spurgeon brought this up, because then I don't have to take any heat for it. And the language he uses, if you can bear Spurgeon, it's worth it. He says, these people, you know, short-tempered, irritable, they look as if they were born on some terribly dark, stormy day. And as if in the mixture of their body, no small quantity of vinegar was employed. They just seem to always be in a bad mood. They're always upset and irritable with people, and it's off-putting. Or, our Lord, he was not argumentative for the sake of it. He didn't, like some, walk into an empty room and start a fight. Or, you know, some people, you say something around them, and you just know a fight is coming. You just know they'll say, well, I don't agree with that. They're never, ever lazy about engaging in debate. You can't just say something and go walk away, and even if they disagree, they leave it. No, they can't leave anything. A lot of times, I just go, yeah, smile. Went to a conference this week. You think I agreed with every single thing someone said to me? I could have gotten fights all week long. The point is, Jesus sought to bless, to help. He was not proud about it. He was not selfish. Selfishness is another thing that can be very off-putting. But if you look at his life, it was the antithesis of selfishness. You know this. I think perhaps the people who most understand selfish friendships, this is just my opinion now. I don't say thus saith the Lord. Just observation opinion. I think from grade 9 to 12, people become quite aware of how friends use them for selfish reasons. That They get used a lot. And they realize they're not really friends, but they get used for purposes. 
You know, before that, kids are a little bit just whatever, getting fights, they scream, they do all sorts of crazy things. Then they wake up, and in grade 9 to 12, all the plotting starts. Maybe for girls a little bit earlier, because they're smarter than boys at that age. So I say grade 7 for girls. And you, you, you hear so often young people talking about, well, you know, I, that person only talks to me when they want this, so they're only using me for this. And it's off-putting, isn't it? But perhaps the most awful thing is the hypocrite. The person who is very good at giving advice to everybody else but won't live by their own rules. Spurgeon makes this point. He says, I think I could even live with the selfish man if he knew that he was a little bit selfish. I confess that in the three weeks I was away, selfishness was one of the things that did come up. And I was like, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, I can be quite selfish at times. I'm just thankful I was aware of it. So Spurgeon could live with me. That's good. But then he says, but the hypocrites do not let him come anywhere near where I am. They're the worst. My point is there was nothing in Christ where you could say hypocrite, selfish, argumentative, haughty, proud, There was nothing in him, and yet they hated him without a cause. What does that tell you about human nature? It tells you how utterly perverse and wicked that we are, that we could look at someone who is without anything that deserves reproach, and yet the reproaches of man fell upon him. Now, I'll come back to the implications of verse 26 and 27, but the time is... It's gone. I know it's warm. I'm sweating. But you're not leaving without this. And quite frankly, to be honest, I've traveled the world. Let me tell you this. I have traveled the world to places far hotter than this and had Christians sit far longer than this. So stop your whining. There. How do we then get to the place where we're going to have the reality of knowing what it is to be in such union with Christ and possess such Christ-likeness that John chapter 15 verse 18 becomes a reality in our own lives where we can say, yes, the world hates me. Because perhaps we're thinking, I can see how this is true of Christ, but I don't see it in my own life. And I think one of the explanations, this deserves probably a whole study, but one of the explanations is we have such a fear of rejection. And it's worse now than it has been for many decades, and there are some compelling reasons why that may be the case. If I may speak back to the grade nines or grade sevens in the terms of girls, uh, to grade twelves, let me throw out a point or two. It's actually being studied that Young people are not getting their driver's license at the young age they used to anymore. And a lot of that is tied to a fear of failure. Young people do not want to fail. They're living in a culture that hates failure. It's very different. I could tell you about all of my failures and all of my rejections. I could tell you it's not nice. In the sports world, in the theological world, in all sorts. I used to 
go and try to talk to everyone, try to go to every English club and play, and they would sometimes say, no, not good enough, or the publisher would say, sorry, not for us, and you get rejected and rejected and rejected, and what you'll find is that no one wants to go through that anymore. Because why? Because for a lot of young people, every single day of their lives on social media, the whole focus is upon likes. The whole focus is upon approval. They live in a world seeking approval every day. I may or may not have a child. And they put a picture on Instagram. I says, you know what? I wish you hadn't put that on Instagram so late at night because we're four hours ahead. You're going to be up all night now looking for all the likes of that picture. There's a bit of wisdom, I promise. But this is not just... This is every child. And the comments... And they're oh so beautiful. And oh, this looks so good. And you are reinforcing every day approval, approval, approval. And then you wonder as a Christian why it's so hard to think that you could do something courageous that would cause you to suffer and be hated when your whole life revolves around being loved. In other words, the world is squishing you into its mold of approval-seeking. And... I saw when I was away a most interesting study of an elevator where this person was in an elevator. When you get into an elevator, you walk into the elevator, but you don't stand and stare at the wall, do you? You know, there's the elevator, you walk in, you go, okay, well, you need to know which floor it's going to. So what do you do? You turn around and you stand like a normal person staring. But what the study did was the person got in the elevator and then people would come in. But every person who came in would stand facing the other way. And the person would be like kind of looking, getting, you could see how nervous they were getting. And after a few people jumped in, there was like eight or nine people, I think, who came in and were staring out. And the person was just like, oh, stuff it, you know. <laughs> because... In all of us, there is a natural hesitation or even hatred of being rejected, of being different. And I think that we fear being disliked more than we enjoy being approved by God. You fear more being disliked and hated more than you enjoy God's approval. As a sports coach, I hate losing more than I enjoy winning. That's a lot of how our Christian life goes. I hate being rejected by people more than I enjoy being approved by God. That is why the world doesn't hate me. That is why the world hated Christ, because he sought God's approval. So what is required? This is what's required. It's Christian courage. Christian courage from the young. Christian courage from the old. And it's amazing to me how just one courageous act in a peer group can have such rippling effects for everyone else. If no one stands for Christ, if no one says, no, this is the right thing, or this is what we should say, others are not going to follow. But you can be that person who can say, I seek the approval of God and Christ, and you will help others. But if there aren't those types of young people, old people, middle-aged people willing to take that stand, it's likely others are not going to follow. Can you be that person who says, I will be like my Savior, even if 
It means the hatred of my peers. And what I think you will find is, yes, there may be some who will mock and ridicule, but there will be some who will actually follow in those footsteps. Just as Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that is the essence of the gospel. Christ went with courage alone to the cross, and it had rippling effects all over the world of people who saw such faithfulness, saw a victorious Savior raised from the dead, and so they were willing to lay down their lives because of one man, one courageous man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that we may have the courage of Christ, not the bombastic nature that might be applauded even in the world, but rather the faithfulness, the gentleness, but also the fearlessness of what it is to stand for the Lord and to seek the approval that comes from God rather than the approval that comes from man. Amen.